Hi, I'm Tyler. And I'm Haley. And welcome to The The Cry Cry Club. Club. everybody and welcome back to a new episode of the cry club up first you guessed it is some housekeeping items okay so we thought of this last week and we're so excited about it we've been trying to think of names like what we would call our followers and we want to know how you guys feel about crybabies we think this would be really fun because the purpose of our podcast is to kind of do a rebranding of crybabies. So being a crybaby is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It means you are processing your emotions rather than letting them fester and rot inside of you. So let us know what you think. How do you guys feel about crybabies? Also, you guys should keep in mind that Haley does all the really cute doodles and graphics on our Instagram. And so imagine one of her really adorable doodles with the crybabies on it. That would be super, super cute. I think it would also be a really fun opportunity for merch, like a sweatshirt that says crybaby on it. I think that would be so cute. That's what I'm saying. The crybabies with your, with your cute little girl crying in the, in the pool. Like that would be so, so cute. Okay. One thing that I feel like I need to apologize for is using the word like a lot in the last episode when I was editing I was having a physical reaction to the the fact that I said the word like like 3000 like 400 and like 52 times. <laughs> so, I'm going to try to do better this time and I apologize if that bothered you as much as it bothered me. I don't think it bothered anyone. It didn't bother me. If that makes you feel any better. Thank you. Okay, cries of the week. My first cry of the week was last night Jacob and I watched Train to Busan. If anyone wants to watch it, it's on Amazon Prime. It's a Korean movie, a zombie movie. These people are stuck on a train and, you know, zombie apocalypse is happening, basically. But it's not like the other zombie movies. I just will say that because I've never once cried in a zombie movie, but I was sobbing hysterically like the last 10 minutes of this movie. For those of you who have seen it, we got to talk about that little girl's acting, her crying. I have never seen such a good child actor crier. It was, she's amazing. And something also that I really liked about that movie that I just want to touch on for a second is that, I don't know if this is just this way with all Korean cinema or if it was just this movie in general, but the men in this movie were openly crying. And multiple men in this movie did that. And I just was like, wow, this is so refreshing almost like I and it's so emotional to see men actually showing their emotions and not trying to make them quote-unquote masculine you know so it was really good I thought wow I can't think of any American movie where there is a man that's openly wailing and weeping like how you just described yeah especially a protagonist right the main character men that are not supposed to it's not it's not supposed to be funny it's not supposed to be exaggerated or you know it's it's a serious cry that they're crying so how cool thanks for sharing that i only have one cry for this week i 
went back to my alma mater, which feels like something that only the elderly say, but I went back to my college campus to participate in a panel. I worked as a teaching assistant for three-ish years while I was attending school and it was a really amazing experience. And uh, I, they reached out to me and asked if I'd come back this year during like a, a training that they were doing before the school started to answer some questions about being a TA and advice and that kind of thing. And first off, it just was really sweet that they reached out to me because this experience was really life-changing as cheesy as that sounds and just provided me with some pretty amazing skills and just insight into myself and what I wanted to do long-term. And while I was there, I just got emotional thinking about all the things that I learned during this time. I, I would say that everyone's college experience has its challenges. I mean, that would just be my guess. And I had some personal challenges that I faced kind of during that time frame that were really, really hard. And as I was going back and walking through campus and freshman orientation was happening and I went into one of the buildings where I did most of my classes, I just felt this almost like this liberating feeling where I just realized like that I felt braver and more confident in myself and my path than I ever felt while I was there. And it just was one of those opportunities where you realize, wow, like I really am growing and making progress. And it, it just felt really happy because I feel like those types of moments are kind of rare. That's so happy. I'm, I'm so proud of you, which sounds really weird. And I hope it doesn't sound, do you know what I mean? Condescending or like, I don't know, but I feel like, would you say it's fair that we're proud of each other for the progress yeah. that we've made? Cause we've known each other for a long enough time at this point, I feel like where we're finally considered like old friends and we kind of knew each other during the most developmental stage of each other's life, freshman year, all the way up to now where we're, you know, 25 years old. I don't know. I feel like we have both grown and changed and we're a lot more ourselves than we were when we first met. So yeah, I think so too. Thanks for saying that. I'm proud of us. And I'm so proud of you because Tyler seriously has, again, I feel, I don't know how to say this without it sounding weird, but Tyler does things comfortably now that would have given her a run for her money her freshman year um which i think just goes to show what an amazing person tyler is because she puts so much work and effort into being a very sincerely wonderful person okay well my second cry of the week is sitting here talking to Haley. <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice thanks for thanks for saying that i really appreciate it of course i love you okay let's actually get on with things. Okay. I'm going to skip my next cry. Okay. So now we're getting into the meat of this episode, which is hormones, baby. We're talking all about female reproductive and hormonal health. Okay. So if this is a subject that is in any way triggering for you for whatever reason, this is your opportunity to log off and go listen to Haley's meditation that she released last week. Uh, because that'll definitely give you some Zen vibes. Otherwise, I'm going to jump into talking a little bit about the historical perception of women's hormones and then a tiny, tiny glimpse 
into the history of birth control. And I just want to reiterate that this is a really quick survey because I didn't want to take up too much time so that we could really hear, hear from Haley because she's done a lot of work when it comes to understanding um, hormones and female reproduction. A lot of women know next to nothing about their own sexual and reproductive health because it's not taught. Unless you go looking for this information, the things that you're going to be talking about in your little segment, I think that that's part of the issue. Because of the things that you're going to be talking about, the way that female sexuality is portrayed culturally, and we still have these underlying roots, um, that's why we don't talk about it. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say too. Okay. So this will be, this will be brief, but well, first I wanted to say anecdotally, anecdotally that I was just at the doctor's office and I asked to have my hormone levels checked because of how tired I am all the time. Uh, and they literally said to me that my hormone levels didn't have anything to do with my current concerns about my health, <laughs> girl, which I just, oh. which was astounding to me. But anyway, um, uh, well, and also probably 100% not true. And this is why women need to know about their own body so that they can advocate for their own health because doctors are not always helpful. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's super true. So the first time I was exposed to, uh, this, I, idea about like the demonization of women's hormones and that type of thing was when I was studying literature during college because we were studying kind of some some older texts that talked about the word hysteria and so I learned that the Latin word for womb was hystera just kidding I don't know if that's how you say it but I'm gonna go with that um, and that the womb was believed to actually wander around the female body, causing a variety of ailments. Can you believe that? That just gives me the giggles if I think about just this body, like this internal organ that's just like, oh, today I'm going to pop over to the knee. Nope. Now we're going to go check out, you know, the bicep. Just so random. Hilarious. Uh, and it was believed to cause you know, all sorts of sicknesses. And in the following centuries, things like PTSD or anxiety, depression, et cetera, they were all diagnosed and all misdiagnosed in women as hysteria. So occasionally they would say that it could affect men, but it was primarily used to describe women. I looked up a couple quotations where some French physicians were like, yeah, like sometimes men, but uh, mostly women. And one French physician even said that hysteria was basically the same as emotional instability because it meant that, that you were subject to sudden changes with great sensibility of the soul, which just sounds like something used to describe like a really overly emotional girl. Don't you think? Yeah. They literally would treat hysteria by locking women in a room and not letting them leave or do anything or eat anything other than like grits or gruel or something until they were better. So they wouldn't let them go outside. They wouldn't let them do anything. If anyone has read the yellow wallpaper, that short story where she goes crazy in her room, that's the treatment for hysteria. That sounds like a really good treatment for someone who has depression. Lock them in a room. Don't let them interact with anybody. Right. I really liked this article that this author, her name is Shalom Sign, I'm probably not saying that right, but she writes that 
there is a cultural belief that women are simply less capable of being reasonable. We as women still contend with this idea in current society. Women are typically considered less reasonable. When we're upset, we get asked whether we are on our period. When we're not upset and instead feeling emotionally level, we're considered cold. And so I feel like this is a catch-22. So it's a lie to say that hormones don't affect our moods and well-being, right? But then it's also a lie to say that they control our moods and well-being. And so Haley's going to dive deeper into this and also into topics like birth control. And so I thought it would be helpful if I just gave you a super brief rundown about birth control. There are so many women who champion the creation and accessibility of birth control and, you know, what we consider the pill today. And Margaret Sanger is one of our, one of our major heroes. So she opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916. And over three decades later, when she was in her eighties, she was still organizing support for research to create, uh, the first quote unquote pill. Uh, and then I got the following information from the website, our bodies ourselves. And it talks a lot about how in 1953, two male biologists were able to develop birth control, but I didn't know this, that the only reason they were able to do that was because they were funded by a philanthropist named Catherine McCormick. And there were state laws that prohibited contraceptive research. And so the biologists had to test it in super controversial ways. So for example, they tested it on patients at the psychiatric hospital in Massachusetts, and then poor women living uh, in Puerto Rico. So that just reminded me a little bit about our dude from the true crime episode where he was testing out his LSD on his unsuspecting victims. So in 1960, the first oral contraceptive, which was a mix of progesterone and estrogen, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. 1960, like that is pretty crazy. Like that was not that long ago. But it was only allowed for married people. And it wasn't until 1972 that there was a Supreme Court case that legalized it for unmarried individuals. And I think it's pretty, pretty cool because access to the pill allowed a lot of women to go to college, be in the workforce, and just have more say over uh, their bodies and their reproduction and their reproductive health. Well, I think that that is really crazy to think that it wasn't until 1960, and now I'm understanding why my grandma, who was born in the 1920s, had nine children. So now I'm going to get into my part. This is just the basics, the very basics. There's so much more information and resources out there for those of you who want to learn more about your bodies than the very basic rundown that I'm going to give you all today. So... Um, birth control was a big step forward for women's rights um, simply because it gave women more control over their own bodies. And I think it's worth mentioning that when birth control was being developed, it was to help women have more control in their marriages because husbands basically had all the control over when women were able to stop having children and women were not a part of that conversation or equation despite the fact that it was their own body and i'm not anti-birth control and i want to make that clear i'm simply going through again the basics and that includes the risks and um, side effects that come with birth control because a lot of women go in not knowing what it is how it's doing the things it's doing in their bodies and what that 
how their body is going to respond to that. So this is just a way to try and inform women to make their own decisions with all of the information. Before I jump into all the basics of our periods and that sort of thing, I just want to give a quick disclaimer that I am not a doctor, nor am I claiming to be any kind of expert. Everything that I will relay in this episode is mostly from Elisa Vitti's book, Woman Code, as well as Laura Bryden's book, The Period Repair Manual. And this is research that I've done for myself because I have issues with my cycle, and so I have tried to figure out what works for me. That being said, there is a ton of independent variability between women and their cycles. So what works for me may not work for you, and I don't want any advice that I give in this episode to be taken as a prescription for what you should do with your body. These are things that might feel good and that might help um, because they've helped me, but ultimately you should listen to your own body and by doing that, hopefully you can kind of optimize your own cycle and learn what feels best to you on an individual level because like I said, everyone's different. Okay, let's get started. So here are the basics of female hormones and female health. Um, We all know that male hormones run on a 24-hour cycle, which is how the modern workday was patterned. Um, Men's testosterone is highest in the mornings when they have the most energy, and by the afternoon and night, their hormones have dropped and they get tired, they get hungry, they get angry. Female hormones are also on a cycle, but we are on a 24 to 30-day cycle. It's considered regular. So the first step to understanding your hormones is recognizing that you're not on a daily cycle. Your cycle lasts weeks. So there will be days or weeks at a time where you feel high energy and days or weeks at a time where you feel low energy. And that is all part of the normal female cycle. In case anyone is listening that didn't know this, that male hormones are on a 24-hour cycle and female hormones are on the 24 to 30-day cycle, uh, same. What? How did I not know this until like three weeks ago when Haley mentioned it in an episode. So you are not alone. I just wanted to to throw that out there. I know it's kind of crazy because then it makes you be like, oh, is that why working when I'm almost on my period or when I'm on my period is so hard for me? Yes, it is because the modern workday was designed to end at that phase of your hormonal cycle. But we don't get that luxury. It's run off a male cycle. All right, so there are technically three different phases in our menstrual cycles. The follicular phase, the ovulatory phase, and the luteal phase. For the sake of clarity in this episode, I'm going to kind of break up the follicular phase into two different phases um, for a total of four phases, which will be follicular, ovulatory, luteal, and menstrual, which is when you're actually bleeding. So technically the menstrual phase is a part of the follicular phase, but I'm going to break them up into four just to make it a little bit easier to go through them. So the first thing to understand about the four phases of our cycle is that there are essentially three functioning hormones within our bodies that regulate this cycle. The three hormones are estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. Estrogen is mostly made by your ovaries It regulates your cycle and it also helps your heart and your blood vessels, your bone, your skin, your hair, your brain, your pelvic muscles, a lot of things. 
estrogen is what keeps the female body running, and it's also what keeps your period regular. So your estrogen levels will rise and fall, and this will affect what phase of your period you are in. Um, The next one, testosterone, is also mostly produced in your ovaries, and this works to help with growth, maintenance, repair of reproductive tissues, your bone mass, all that sort of stuff, and it also affects your mood, your sex drive, and muscle growth. So testosterone will also rise and fall with your period. The last one, progesterone, is produced by a specific gland in your ovaries, and it's only made once per cycle right after you ovulate. This hormone triggers your endometrium for pregnancy by thickening the lining of your uterus, and it also makes it so your muscles can't contract in your uterus. So that's what cramps are, is your muscles contracting in your uterus. So if you have high levels of progesterone, your cramps will be less severe. Now that we've kind of hit on those essential cycle hormones, let's get into the four phases. So the first phase, follicular, which I'm going to start post-period, so when you stop bleeding, your hormones are low coming off of your period. Um, But estrogen is beginning to rise. Your energy is kind of returning again. This is a goal-oriented phase. So it's a great time to prep, grocery shop, make plans. You might find yourself kind of getting your motivation back for the upcoming weeks, especially coming off of your period when you might have felt very tired, low energy, that sort of thing. So during this phase, fermented foods, fresh greens, and citrus are really good for your body. Um, The reason being because as estrogen levels are rising again, your gut needs help metabolizing it because there's a lot more estrogen in your body than there was prior to this phase, if that makes sense. After the follicular phase, you're going to jump right into your ovulatory phase. This is your most fertile phase and is your chance to get pregnant. So this is the phase where estrogen and testosterone will both peak. There will be a big jump in those hormones during your ovulation, which means that you might be feeling sexual, energetic, social, that sort of thing. Um, And your body might crave higher intensity workouts or cardio just because you have more energy during this time in your cycle. From a fertility standpoint, if you are, you know, trying to strengthen your uterus, maybe trying to get pregnant, you are going to want B vitamins and folic acid. So things like fish, dark leafy greens, dairy products, eggs, whole grains, seeds, beans, all that sort of stuff that will really help increase progesterone levels right when you're done ovulating which will make your uterus lining stronger and thicker, which will help with, you know, implantation of your egg and stuff. From a non-fertility standpoint, it is also not a bad idea to get some B vitamins and folic acid in because as I mentioned earlier, progesterone helps keep your uterus from cramping up. So getting a good amount of progesterone in the one time per cycle that you produce it is a good way to help lessen your cramps. After ovulation, you're going to get into your luteal phase, which is another mini peak for estrogen. So during your ovulation, your estrogen obviously peaks and then it will drop right when you're done ovulating. And then during your luteal phase, it'll kind of rise again and then drop off right before your period starts. Also with your luteal phase, since you just stopped ovulating, progesterone is now being produced and that will be peaking as well. 
So beginning of this phase of your luteal phase, you might be feeling creative. You'll probably feel a push to kind of complete things that you started or follow through on your goals and commitments. During this time, you'll probably want to eat plenty of protein, eggs, um, that sort of thing, because it will help you maintain muscle while your body is preparing to bleed during your actual period. Eating lots of protein will be good for you during this phase. There's also been research that has shown that our metabolic rate can rise during the luteal phase, so you might feel extra hungry, and that is totally fine, and you should eat more to match that hunger. Towards the end of your luteal phase, right before your period starts, your energy is just gonna drop. So all of your hormones, your estrogen and your progesterone, are going to be at their lowest. Um, except testosterone. Testosterone is holding pretty steady during this time. Uh, so if you feel extra emotional or angry, we know who the culprit is. Towards the end of this phase, you also might feel a need to kind of clean and repair or, you know, nest because your body knows that it's going to need to rest soon as you get into the menstrual phase of your cycle where you're bleeding. Finally, after your luteal phase, you get into your menstrual phase where you are actually on your period. You will probably be low energy during this phase. You will need to rest. All of your hormones are at their lowest pretty much, um, and that's why you'll feel more emotional than normal. So stretching, walking, low-intensity movement can be good for your body. It can be good for your digestion, and eating things like dark chocolate might help fight fatigue and low libido because dark chocolate is rich in magnesium and it also boosts your serotonin, which you really need during this phase. So if you're wondering, why do I always crave chocolate when I'm on my period? It's because your body is like, help, I need serotonin and, you know, magnesium, which will also help with cramps. Um, you also might want to eat gentle foods to help your gut since during your period, your digestion can really struggle. Try and focus on restoration and rest during this phase. Go easy on your body if your body needs it. Again, not prescribing anything. If you find you have a lot of energy during your period, great, use your energy. But if you are feeling like your periods are rough on you, take it easy, take it slow, rest up. All right, so now that we have kind of gone over the basics of the essential hormones that are functioning in our bodies throughout our cycles, we can jump into birth control. Um, like we said earlier, birth control can be a really helpful tool for, you know, managing your body, but it messes with your hormones in a way that isn't natural to your body, which is where we get all of those nasty side effects that we are not so fond of. So let's answer the basic question, what is birth control doing in our bodies? Like, how does it stop us from getting pregnant? And the answer is it stops you from ovulating. So as we went over earlier, right after you ovulate, you get this spike in progesterone. But then if you are not pregnant, your progesterone level drops and your period starts. What birth control does is it releases a man-made version of progesterone called progestin, as well as a man-made version of estrogen called, I think it's estradiol valerate or something like that. It releases two man-made versions of these hormones that keep your hormone levels elevated in a way that only happens in your body when you're pregnant. So by giving your body an excess dose of these pseudo-hormones, 
it tricks your body into thinking you're pregnant and then you don't ovulate. Okay, that makes sense. These um, fake hormones also kind of change the way your uterus naturally op operates because it makes the lining of your uterus, uterus less hospitable for an egg to implant. So even if, you know, you were to have an egg somehow, it makes it so your uterus couldn't hold them, couldn't hold the egg. Um, since this type of birth control is changing your hormones and releasing pseudo-hormones into your body, your body reacts with all of those negative side effects like headaches, nausea, vomiting, um, even mood or personality changes because your body has regulated your entire life with a certain balance of the hormones that it creates for itself. So when that balance is upset, you might think, I'm a different person when I'm on birth control. You literally are a different person because it's changing your hormones, which changes the way your brain works. It changes how chemicals are released. Everything is connected. So if you feel like you're a different person on birth control, you literally are, and that's not just in your head. Um, it can also cause things like tiredness, dizziness, abdominal pain, weight gain, chest pain, um, and in severe cases, it can cause blood clots, high pressure, high blood pressure, things like kidney disease and stroke. So birth control is no joke. Along those same lines, it can be a mistake to prescribe birth control to, for example, teenage girls, especially for things just like if you want to get rid of your acne. Um, and the reason I feel that way is because 3 to 6% of women who take hormonal birth control lose their periods completely when they go off of the hormonal birth control. So that's one in every 15 to 30 women will never get their period back after taking hormonal birth control for a while. When I was in high school and I had acne, a dermatologist prescribed me birth control. I took it for about one month but it was making me feel really sick, so I stopped taking it. But now looking back on that, I'm a little bit appalled because they didn't tell me what birth control was, what it was doing to my body, or that there was a chance that it could cause infertility. Does it cause that in everyone? No, but it is a possibility, and I feel like that would be something that is good to know so that you don't approach it lightly. That being said, I don't wanna freak anyone out, so that is much more common in women who have outside factors that contribute to something wrong with their periods. So for example, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, or irregular cycles, they're at a much higher risk of losing their period than a woman who has a regular cycle. That's hormonal birth control. But what about non-hormonal birth control? What non-hormonal birth control basically does is it blocks the sperm from reaching your egg. So you're still ovulating, your cycle is still happening like normal, but it just doesn't allow sperm to get to your egg. So, for example, something like a spermicide or a condom that just blocks the sperm from getting there. A more common or permanent non-hormonal birth control is something like, like a copper IUD. And a copper, basically sperm hate copper. Oh, okay. I was so, going to ask why the copper specification. Yeah, so sperm react to copper and it makes them, basically makes it so they can't move or mm. get to the egg. Mm. It still has bad side effects. So for example, it causes much heavier periods, much heavier bleeding and intense cramping. Um, no one is really sure why that is, but we think it has something to do with the way that it vascularly changes that area down there. So our uterus is getting less oxygen and less blood flow than it would without that copper up in there. 
it's also very painful to insert. IUDs are. So people talk about it being uncomfortable. It'll be a little discomfort. No, you're prying your cervix open. So it'll really, really hurt to put that in. Again, I just don't, I don't want to deter women who want to use birth control from using birth control if they choose to do that. But I do want women to make informed decisions about their bodies. And that means knowing all of the risk factors that come with using these types of birth controls. Just like Tyler's story earlier with her doctor who said her hormones have nothing to do with her low energy levels, we need to take charge of our own bodies and we can't trust other people to make important decisions for us. I feel, I feel like you're slowing down the end of commercials, you know, like those commercials about like a new, I don't know, medication. And then at the end, they say really fast, may cause blood clotting, nausea, vomiting, or death, right? And I guess we just don't necessarily dig into those negative side effects. And we're talking about birth control. And I feel like you're just trying to give us the space to do that, not necessarily say that you know, your anti one way or the other. I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that you want people to be able to make their own choices. You just want them to be informed about it. So I think, I think that's great. No. Yeah. Because there, there really is a whole community of women out there who were unaware of what birth control was going into it. I, I mean, even I know so many people who went on birth control and it was a disaster for them. It was a train wreck. They felt like it completely changed their personalities or you know, that sort of thing. And for example, for someone like me who has endometriosis, knowing that going on hormonal birth control would reduce my chance of being able to have kids, especially because my chances are already lower than normal, that's, that is a big factor in my decision of whether or not to use birth control. So you just have to know what your own body is doing before you can decide how you're going to mess with it. Now that we have the basics of your hormones and of birth control, I need to go into, or I want to go into some common misconceptions and just answer them. Misconception number one, if you are taking the pill version of hormonal birth control, there's a placebo week where you get your period, kind of, right? Except not. So do you need to take the placebo week pills if you are taking a pill? No. You might hear doctors saying that it regulates your cycle, helps keep you regular if you bleed, but it's not true. You're not ovulating at all, which means you don't have a lining of your uterus to shed. So when you take that placebo week, it's a nothing bleed. You're bleeding for no reason and you don't need to. It's not helping regulate your cycle. So if you're on the pill and you don't want to bleed, you don't need to. Just skip to the next month and continue taking your regular pills. You do not need a placebo week. Okay, next misconception. The only way to combat painful periods is with birth control. False. There are so many other things that you can do. Um, and this is where I'm going to recommend the book Woman Code by Elisa Vitti um, or the Period Repair Manual by Laura Bryden. Both of these books have so many tips to help you first identify why you might be experiencing a painful period and then how to change that and how with just lifestyle adjustments you can take your hormones into your own hands and control a lot of things that people will tell you you can't control it's just not true next one 
um, connected to the last one is that intense period pain is normal. No, it's not normal. Intense period pain is abnormal and it's not part of a regular cycle. So if it stops you from being able to do day-to-day -day activities or if it doesn't respond to, you know, natural remedies, things like heat packs and maybe, you know, pop a couple ibuprofen, if it doesn't respond to that, that is considered abnormal period pain. And it is your body's sign that something is wrong. It's your body trying to tell you something in here is not working the way that it should be. That's not normal. And you shouldn't ignore it. And that's part, that's one qualm that I do have with these doctors who just prescribe birth control. Is that rather than addressing the source of the problem, they throw a blanket over it and say, well, this will get rid of your symptom. While the issue continues to worsen and worsen. And if you ask me, that is why three to six percent of women lose their periods because there's something wrong with their body and they cover that thing up with birth control. Um, meanwhile, the problem is worsening and worsening behind the scenes. So by the time they finally come off the birth control, they haven't been able to do anything because they haven't understood their body. And by that point, it's too late. Our bodies are incredibly intelligent and they're trying to communicate with us that there's something wrong. So just for an example, if you have intense period pain, you should visit a doctor to figure out what's going on. Find a OBGYN that you trust and work with them to figure out what is going on. In the meantime, um, magnesium, zinc, and turmeric are great for period pain. They're basically your best friends. Turmeric is a great anti-inflammatory and magnesium and zinc will help reduce that pain as well. Next one, living by my cycle will take up my whole life. Basically what I was saying earlier with all of the different phases, follicular, um, ovulatory, luteal, and menstrual phases, a lot of women think, oh my gosh, this is just so hard to try and keep track of. All of the different kinds of foods that I have to eat, all the different kinds of activities and energy levels. Like, how am I ever going to keep track of all this? It's going to take up my whole life and I have to change everything about my life to try and regulate my cycle and live according to my hormonal levels. It really does seem overwhelming in the beginning. I remember I felt that way when I first started to research all of this stuff. Um, but you don't need to do everything all at once. The basics, just doing the basics, will help your body so much. So if someone is starting to try to learn about this and live by their cycle, like what, what do you feel like is a reasonable first step? What would you recommend for someone just getting started that's really overwhelmed, that feels like they can't do all of the things that you described? That is a great question. And I feel like my number one answer is get a good diet. And I don't mean diet as in trendy dieting. I mean like make sure that you are eating regularly and you are eating enough. A lot of periods or a lot of problems with our hormones come from fluctuating blood sugar levels. So if our blood sugar levels are plummeting and they're low because we are not eating, I am looking at you intermittent fasting. This is the worst. So skipping, skipping breakfast, not eating for a long period of the day, and then maybe eating one giant meal. Or again, going without eating for long periods of time when you are awake is horrible for your hormones. It spikes and drops your blood sugar levels, which 
means your body doesn't have the fuel or the ingredients that it needs to release the hormones that your body needs, especially with digestion. So if you are only eating sparingly and you're not eating enough, your digestion can't function the way that it's supposed to. And then here comes the biggest problem with that. Your digestion is your body's way of getting rid of waste. So everything that it doesn't need, it can't use, and is no longer good for your body is going out through the back door. And when you don't eat regularly, your body stops producing the hormones that aid in digestion. And then you get constipated and you don't have regular, you know, bowel movements, basically. And the problem with that is that your intestine is a semi-permeable membrane. And if stuff stays in there for too long where it's not supposed to be, your body reabsorbs the toxins. It results in getting really sick. It results in acne. Your skin is your body's largest organ. So any problem that you are having in your gut will show up on your skin, on your face. So a lot of hormonal acne, a lot of, you know, your organs not working the way they need to comes from poor digestion. I think that is a really good way to explain it because when I was trying to figure out all my issues with my acne, I feel like the doctors were just saying things like, well, you just eat too much sugar or like just completely cut out dairy instead of suggesting like, how often are you eating? Like, I think in my mind it demonized sugar or milk or bread or things like that. And I thought those things were doing harm to my body instead of realizing that what mattered most was regular eating and that there wasn't necessarily one thing that I totally needed to cut out, you know, unless I'm having an allergic reaction to it, obviously, but that it was more about making sure that my body knew that it could predict when it would get food and that it would be fed and so that this constipation and that type of thing didn't happen. So anyway, I just thought that was that was a good a good explanation of that. Yeah, there there's no such thing as good foods and bad foods. All prov- all foods provide energy and sustenance to your body. Um that being said, if you have certain medical conditions, you should avoid certain foods. So for example, um sugar and dairy, no one explains the reason that people typically try to avoid those things is because those foods are very inflammatory for your body and also because they spike they can spike your blood sugar levels if you're not consuming anything else with them so if i were to just eat sour gummy worms for all of my meals every day my blood sugar would still be spiking and my just my digestion would still have problems however if i ate sour gummy worms after I had eaten, or before, whenever, if I had sour gummy worms with a bowl of rice and some chicken and maybe some potatoes and veggies, my body doesn't have a hard time with it anymore because I have other things that are helping my body maintain my blood sugar levels. So that that's one thing. That would be the number one thing that I would say people should do if they're trying to regulate their bodies, regulate their hormones. Eat often and eat enough food. I just, I really quickly want to go through a couple of other tips and tricks if you're trying to regulate your cycle. So number one, eat regularly and eat enough. Number two, get enough sleep. Our bodies need consistent quality rest to rejuvenate and repair. So make sure you're sleeping regularly. Try and do it at about the same time every day so that your circadian rhythm can sync itself up with your body. Um, 
and then focus your attention on how your body feels and don't ignore the signals that you get. I was thinking about this the other day because I've been having like back issues <laughs> and I've been thinking about how conscious I am of the way my body moves and feels right now while I'm having these back problems. So I noticed that bending over in a certain way or stretching a certain way really hurts my back. And now I'm focusing, or at least trying to focus on, you know, sitting with good posture and doing a lot of stretching and yoga because I'm trying to heal my body from this issue that it's having. And while it really, really sucks to have pain, there's something that's kind of, I don't know, beautiful about how conscious we are of our bodies when they're in pain. And if we could take that same consciousness and put it over onto our bodies when we're feeling great, I feel like that's really what preventative health care is. If we can still notice the little idiosyncrasies <laughs> of our bodies and say, this feels really good for me, or this doesn't feel so good. And if we can notice those things before our bodies are completely wrecked and we're forced to notice them, um, I think we can create really, I don't know, good lives for ourselves. Pay attention to how your body feels. Listen to it. If it's tired, rest. If you have energy, go for a run. If you're hungry, eat, you know, so that you can stay feeling good and your body doesn't force you. Okay, that's all I have. My wow, that was amazing. I can tell you did so much work to prepare all of that and share it with us and that it's something that you're really passionate about as you, as you should be, right? Because you have a personal story and experience with this and you have seen this affect lots of other people. And I think your theme of listening to your body and advocating for yourself and trying to understand what works best for you and your lifestyle is really inspirational and applicable to anyone who's either using birth control or considering it or just living in a female body. So thank you so much for sharing that. We hope you guys enjoyed learning from Haley today. I did. I learned so much. Well, thanks again for tuning in. Please leave us a review when you are in a really kind and generous mood. Subscribe, follow our Instagram at the Cry Club Podcast, and let us know what you think about being our crybabies.